One year I was in Israel at Purim, and I was at Latrun, which is the main tank base. And they had brought in a speed reader to read the book of Esther, who got through the book of Esther in about 10 minutes. And that was their celebration of Purim. I will not do that to you tonight. But let's go ahead and get started. If you would grab your Bibles, please. The story of Purim is multifaceted. The first lesson we draw from Purim is that sin has consequences. That if we would be obedient to God, life would be so much better for us. And we see in the book of Esther then some repentance and some faith being shown. And that just swings the mood in the book of Esther. Does everybody have your noisemaker? Everybody. Let me first explain why we do that. It's not just because we're children at heart. There's a reason for it. And we begin first in Genesis chapter 14, verse 7. In Genesis chapter 14, verse 7, we have the first mention of a peoples known as the Amalekites. Let's look at it. Genesis 14, 7. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat. What does En mean? It means spring. Mishpat, judgment. That is Kadesh. And attacked all the country of the Amalekites. And also the Amorites who dwelt in Hazazon Tamar. At the time of the, the events of Genesis 14, there are no Amalekites. But by the time Moses writes, of course, they know that the area where this thing happened is the area that came to be inhabited by the Amalekites. We first learn of the Amalekites in Genesis chapter 36 to find out who they are and why they hate Israel so much. Genesis chapter 36, verse 12. This is the genealogy of Esau. Esau, the brother of Jacob. Did Jacob steal Esau's birthright, or did Esau sell it to him for a bowl of stew? So, well, his descendants forgot about that. So in Genesis chapter 36, verse 12, we're reading the genealogy of Esau. Now, Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Amalek is Esau's grandson. Now Jacob has grandsons too, right? They're just coming out of Egypt. So the Amalekites are forming as a people as the Israelites are forming as a people. And there is, shall we say, some animosity in the part of the Amalekites toward Israel. So in Exodus chapter 17... God says that the Amalekites are to be wiped out, blotted out the remembrance of, that they not even be remembered anymore, which means no physical descendants left to remember them. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 to 16. God tells us why. Is it just because he doesn't like their looks? No, it isn't that. It's their hearts that have a problem. Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8. 
It says, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose some men and go out. Fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. What does Amalek not want Israel to do? To come into covenant with God and come into the promised land. They want the descendants of Esau to have the covenant with God and come into the promised land. Verse 7, so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then Moses, I'm sorry, then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book, and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, called his name Adonai Nisi, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Until when? Until he wipes them out. Until they've been utterly blotted out from the remembrance under heaven. If we go to Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25. God does not want the children of Israel to remember what Amalek did. Remember, Amalek and the Israelites are cousins. They're family. Is this how you treat family? Not supposed to be. Deuteronomy 25. Did Amalek attack the strong military warriors or did they attack the stragglers, the sick, the weak, the elderly? Deuteronomy chapter 25, beginning in verse 17. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear. When you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven you shall not forget. So in the book of Exodus the Lord said I will blot out the remembrance. And in Deuteronomy 25 we find out his method is by having the children of Israel Abolish them as a people. If we go to 1 Samuel chapter 15, here's where God gives the command to the first king of Israel whose name was Saul. Is that important to the story? It absolutely is. Haman is an Amalekite, a descendant of Amalek that God said in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 9. This is what was to be with the Amalekites. Verses 1 through 9. Samuel also said to Saul, 
The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore he the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Uh-oh, what kind of prophecy? In times prophecy. This is a glimpse in the fact that Saul's not going to carry out the Lord's command, isn't it? I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them. But kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So who are they supposed to leave alive in Amalek? No one. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them into Laim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. Look at the doctrine we see here. Does God destroy the innocent with the guilty? No. He called for the Kenites to come out from among them. Verse 7, And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. Took him how? Alive. And utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. If Saul had carried out the Lord's commandment here, the book of Esther would not have taken place. There would have been no Haman. The antagonist. Okay, let's set the scene. The northern king of Israel goes into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BCE, right? Right. About 120 years, give or take later, the southern kingdom of Judah goes into the Babylonian captivity for how long? 70 years. The number of Sabbath years they had failed to keep. And let me give you some verses. Go to Leviticus 27, 26. Leviticus 26, verse 27. Leviticus 26, verse 27. So they go into captivity because of what? Disobedience. According to Hebrews chapter 3, that disobedience it demonstrated a lack of what? Faith. So Leviticus chapter 26, verse 27 says, After all this, if you do not obey me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That's because of the siege that Babylon put Jerusalem under and there was no food. I'll destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars. Should Israel have had those? No, those are pagan things. And cast your carcasses on the lifeless forms of your idols, and my soul shall abhor you. I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation, and I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. 
I will bring the land to desolation, and your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the nations and draw out a sword after you. Your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbath, as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, shall rest, for the time it did not rest on your Sabbath when you dwell in it. Stop and think for a moment. When Leviticus is written, have the people even come into the land yet? No. And God tells them, I'm going to send you into captivity for the number of years you fail to let the land enjoy its Sabbath rest. Knowing that, would you have kept the Sabbath years in Israel? I think I would too. But they didn't. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 8. Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 8 through 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words. <clears throat> Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them. And make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolations. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy, Seventy years. Because that's the number of Sabbath years they failed to keep. Go to Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. God does what God says he will do. And he gave the people fair warning. Second Chronicles 36 beginning in verse 15. And the Lord, the God of their father, sent warnings to them by his messengers, rising up early and sending them, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin. On the age of the week, he gave them all into his hand. And all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then he burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. And those who escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. 
to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So verse 20 says, until the time of the Persians. So Nebuchadnezzar took Judah captive. He was succeeded by evil Merodach, his son, then by Belshazzar, his son, who was overthrown by the Medes and the Persians, Darius and Cyrus, who was named 125 years before he was born in the book of Isaiah. And after Cyrus and Darius was Xerxes, otherwise known as Ahasuerus, he is the king in Esther. So the 70 years have come to the point of being fulfilled when we come to the book of Esther. We mentioned that Haman was a direct descendant of Amalek. What about the good guy in this story, Mordecai? Yay, Yay Mordecai! Well, Mordecai's genealogy is given in the second chapter of the book of Esther, but I want to talk about it before we read the story. He is a descendant of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin. Kish was the name of King Saul's father. And the Talmud accords Mordecai the status of a descendant of the first king of Israel this way. The Targum Shani. You know what a Targum is? It's an Aramaic paraphrase. So it tries to explain in simpler terms the Hebrew scriptures. And it gives his genealogy in more detail as follows, quote, He was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shemi, the son of Shemidah, son of Ba'ana, son of Elah, son of Micah, son of Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, son of Kish son of Benjamin, son of Jacob the firstborn, whose name is called Israel. So this should cause us to go to, wait, wait, wait a minute. Weren't all of Saul's sons put to death? Not Mephibosheth. So let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. Why not Mephibosheth? What happened? He was lame. How does that happen? Let's go look. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. What news? That they'd been killed. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. So the nurse was afraid they would kill him too. So she's fleeing with him to save his life, but she trips and falls. And it damages his ankles to the point that he is lame. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Is the intent of the enemy to destroy all the descendants of Saul and Jonathan? The answer is yes. So what happened? 2 Samuel chapter 9, beginning verse 1. 
Now David said, Is there still anyone who's left of the house of Saul, that it may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when he had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul? which I may show the kindness of God. And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. That's interesting. What does Lodabar mean? It means nothing. No thing. Yep. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, here is your servant. What does he think is about to happen? He thinks David's about to kill him. But that's not it at all. Look at verse 7. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. And will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather. And you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? And a king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. You shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micha. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. So Mephibosheth was afraid David was going to put him to death, but he finds instead David shows him kindness. But that's not the last threat to Mephibosheth, is it? Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 7. Where was he staying before? Where was he? I'm sorry? Where was he staying? Oh, they told us the house of Amiel and Lodabar. Would that have been somebody around Jerusalem? Or yeah. Okay. Yeah. But a very small, insignificant place to be called no thing. Right. <laughs> 2 Samuel 21, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Ooh, remember the Gibeonites had a treaty of peace with Israel, sworn to them on the name of the Lord. And yet Saul decided to attack not the people God told him to, but the ones God told him not to. Ooh. Verse 2, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, 
but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement? That you may bless the inheritance of the Lord. And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that was Saul, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the Gibeonites will destroy the rest of the descendants of Saul's house, but not Mephibosheth. All right. So now we know the two main characters in the book of Esther. Haman, the descendant of the Amalekites. That's right. Wipe out his name. Blot it out. And Mordecai, the descendant of Saul. If Saul had destroyed the Amalekites, there wouldn't be the issue that arises in the book of Esther. One more point before we look at the book of Esther is you will not find it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. This has caused modern scholars to say, oh, that means it shouldn't be in a Bible. Because every other book in the Old Testament is there in the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls, but not Esther. But remember, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a Geniza. Do you know what a Geniza is? It's a burial site. If a scroll contains the name of God and you make an error when copying it, you cannot burn it. You have a funeral service and bury it in a Geniza. And that's what those Qumran caves are. The scribes at Qumran copied scrolls. And when you got done copying a scroll, you added up every value of every letter on every page. And they had to come out exactly right. Otherwise, you had a funeral service for the scroll. But the book of Esther doesn't contain the name of God. So if you make a mistake with it, you throw it in the fire and start a new one. So it does not contain the name of God, but God is all through it. So let's read it. Open up to the book of Esther. Chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to read what's called the whole Megillah. As in Megillah Gorilla, you remember from when we were kids? Yeah. The writers were Jewish. Okay. So the time is the reign of Artaxerxes' father. Artaxerxes means son of Xerxes. So the king that reigns is Xerxes. He's called in here Ahasuerus. Or in Hebrew, Ahasuerus. It's not a name, it's a title. Like Caesar. You realize Caesar's not a name, it's a title. Like Tsar in Russia. Okay, here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, which means majesty. This was the Ahasuerus 
who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. That is the known world in those days. He rules everywhere, which is important to the story. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel that's in modern-day Iran, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him. Why? Why does he make such a great feast? If you remember, Cyrus, so the children of Israel can go free. But Xerxes stops the return. He believes, I have beaten the God of Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God said they would be in captivity for 70 years and no more. And I'm making them stay longer. What he forgets is there were three ways of captivity. And each of the three waves must spend 70 years. And it's been 70 years from the first group, but not to the last group yet. But he doesn't know that. And he's so arrogant that he throws a great party. What kind of a party? A really drunken party. Verse 4, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty for many days, 180 days in all, a six-month-long feast. To celebrate the fact that he beat the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> we call that arrogance, right? Mm. Pride goes before the fall. And what do you do when you finish a six-month-long feast? You have another feast. <laughs> so verse 5, And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days. So for the six days, it was for the nobility, the leaders, the most wealthy and powerful people in the kingdom. Then for the next seven days, it's everybody. Lasting seven days for all the people who are present in Shushan the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Everybody's invited to this feast of wine. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster, turquoise, and white and black marble. Do you see the wealth of the kingdom of Persia? Who gave the kingdom of Persia that wealth? God did, right? God had ordained that Medo-Persia would overthrow Babylon and take all that great wealth. Are they giving praise to God? Or are they spitting in God's face? I suggest that's a grave error on their part. It's verse 7. And they served drinks in golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other, with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. Every member of the Shushan people, wealthy, poor, great, humble, drinks from a golden vessel. Oh, what, what wealth. Verse 8, in accordance with the law, the drinking was not compulsory. Wine in scripture pictures joy. It's part of a celebration, but you don't have to be happy if you don't want to be. 
For so the king had ordered all the officers of his household that they should do according to each man's pleasure, meaning let him drink all that he wants, but don't force him. Verse 9 says, Queen Vashti also made a feast for the women in the royal palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, hmm, the seventh day of the second feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zathar, and Carcass, seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown. According to the sages, and that's what he meant, only the royal crown. You might think, boy, weren't they modest people back in? No, they weren't very modest. So this, the sages tell us that God struck her with leprosy, and that's why she doesn't come out. It's not modesty. But to bring Queen Vashti before the king, wearing her royal crown, in order to show her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful to behold. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command brought by his eunuchs. Therefore the king was furious, and his anger burned within him. You think he would have been a little less furious if he wasn't so drunk? Yeah, yeah, probably. But again, the sages say God struck her with leprosy, and that's why she doesn't come forward. She might have been more cooperative if she had been more drunk. Maybe, but she's been partying with the ladies for a week, too. Verse 13, And the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for this was the king's manner toward all who knew law and justice, those closest to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and who ranked highest in the kingdom. The word prince does not mean the son of a king. It just means a high-level official, a sub-king ruler. And he says, What shall we do to Queen Vashti according to law? Because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus, Brought to her by the eunuchs. And Mimukan, whom the Tanakh identifies as being Haman, mm -hmm. answered before the king and the princes, Queen Vashti has not only wronged the king, but also the princes, and all the people who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will become known to all women that they will despise their husbands in their eyes when they report King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought in before him, but she did not come. This very day, the noble ladies of Persian media will say to all the king's officials that they have heard of the behavior of the queen, there will be excessive contempt and wrath. If he pleases the king, let a royal decree go out from him. Let it be recorded in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it will not be altered. That Vashti shall come no more before King Ahasuerus. Let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. <clears throat> I want you to stop for a moment. Look at verse 19. The scripture tells us that God does not change, right? And God's word does not change. And here we're giving an example of an earthly king. When his decree is given and sealed, it cannot be changed. 
If an earthly king's decree that seal cannot be changed, do you expect the God of heaven's word to change once it's been sealed? So that's another teaching point from the book of Esther, is that when God gives us a commandment, it is not ever going to change. So verse 20, when the king's decree which he will make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it's great, all wives will honor their husbands, both great and small. And the reply pleased the king and the princes. And the king did according to the word of Memucan. <laughs> then he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province in its own script, and to every people in their own language. Why are there so many languages? He rules the world that each man should be master in his own house and speak in the language of his own people now three to four years pass so everybody go do 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 okay chapter two after these things when the wrath of king Ahasuerus subsided he was only mad for three to four years he remembered Vashti what she had done and what had been decreed against her then the king's servants who attended him said, Let the beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given them. Yeah, they must have been some homely girls because they need years of beauty treatments before they get to come before the king. I don't know. I wasn't there. Verse 4. Then, the young, then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Eshti. This thing pleased the king. And he did so. In Shushan the citadel, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. That's the one who's the descendant of King Saul who should have abolished the Amalekites years ago. Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. Hadassah is Hebrew for myrtle. And myrtle is a symbol of the believers, those who have faith in God. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. What does that mean? That's a technical thing. He adopted her. So she now becomes his daughter. So it was when the king's command and decree were heard. And when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Haggai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Haggai, the custodian of the women. Notice that in verse 8, it does not say she volunteered to come. She was taken. Now the young woman pleased him, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave her beauty preparations besides her allowance. Then seven choice maidservants were provided for her from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maidservants to the best place in the house of the women. Esther had not yet revealed her people or family, for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. 
So nobody in the palace knows that this is a young Jewish girl. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of the women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Why would he do that? Why is he so concerned? It's his adopted daughter. That's right. She was taken. He wants to know, what did they do to her? Verse 12, each woman, each young woman's turn came to go into King Ahasuerus after she had completed how much? Twelve months preparation according to the regulations for the women. For thus were the days of their preparation apportioned. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So for a year she's in a spa, she's doing good, but then, then comes the bad part. Thus prepared, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again, that is not ever in her lifetime, unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Haggai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tevet, in the seventh year of his reign. When was the party? In the third year. Now it's the seventh year. That's how we know that four years have passed. So it's roughly 479 BCE, roughly. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. And she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Does he know he just crowned a Jewish girl as his queen? Nope, has no clue. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther, for all his officials and servants. And he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. When virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people, just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthan and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So what does this do? <clears throat> this saves the life of the king. Verse 23, And when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on a gallows. Let me explain. Please don't picture the Old West where they put up a wooden structure, put a rope around your neck, and ah, hang it till you're dead. To be hung in those days was to be impaled. It's important to the story. 
Also, it's important when people say, well, Judas Iscariot, one place it says he was hung, another place he was impaled. Well, it means the same thing. We just forgot. Okay. Verse 23, when an inquiry was made into the matter, it was confirmed, and both were hanged on the gallows, and it was written in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. Why are we doing that? To blot out the name. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh-huh. For so the king had commanded concerning him, but Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. How do you think that made Haman feel? Ah, he was outraged. Verse 3, then the king's servants were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he would not listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for because Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. Why would a Jew refuse to kneel before a Amalekite? They just didn't kneel before anybody. Ah, not so. Specifically for the ones that God said to blot out the name. You don't pay homage to one that God has cursed. Hmm. Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. Everybody shake your arms a little. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Not sufficient to kill Mordecai. For they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. All the Jews who are in the kingdom of Medo-Persia are all the Jews there are, right? Right. What if Haman had been successful and every Jewish person in the world was wiped out? Would there have been a Messiah? No. no. So Satan sees the chance here to destroy the children of Israel before Messiah can come. Hmm. Verse 7. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year. How much time has passed now? In chapter 2, verse 16, it was the seventh year of his reign. What's it now? Now is the twelfth year. So, more years are best. So everybody go, do, 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 do. Okay. In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur. Pur is the Persian word for lottery. That is the lot. Before Haman... To determine the day and the month until it fell in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Ah, oh, can you see his face now? It's the first month, and he's got to wait till the twelfth month to kill all the Jewish people. He's got to wait almost a whole year. Can you imagine how that must burn? Then Haman 
said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they do not keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasuries. Anybody know how much 10,000 talents of silver is? It's 375 tons which was two-thirds of Persia's annual income. It's a fortune. Hmm. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. Make that an, a note in your notes. The 13th day of Nisan. Keep that in mind. And a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded. To the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all people, to every province according to its script, and every people in their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written in sealed with the king's signet ring. What's it mean when it's sealed? Can it ever be changed? Never. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people, that they should be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Shushan was perplexed. Why perplexed? Wonder why this is being done. They don't have any problem with the Jewish people. So chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes. What's that mean? Morning. Great mourning. And put on sackcloth and ashes, bitter remorse and repentance. And went out into the midst of the city, cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province where the king's command decree arrived, there was great mourning amongst the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Told her what? Everybody's going to get wiped out. No. No, that Mordecai is in great mourning. His robes are torn. She, she never heard about this decree. So Esther's maids and Eunice came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her. And she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why was this. 
She wants to know why. Why won't you accept these nice clothes? Why won't you give up the sackcloth? So Hathok went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in the king's gates. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, as in tell it to her in little simple words that we're all going to die. Verse 9. Well, there's more in verse 8. And that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. There's a problem with that, though, as we keep reading. So Hathok returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathok and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants... And the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king, who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So what's the problem? Mordecai says, you've got to go talk to the king. She says, I can't. Anyone who goes into the king's court without being summoned will be put to death unless the king holds out the scepter to grant clemency. And she says, he hasn't called for me in a month. Verse 12, so they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. How can he say that? That relief and deliverance will arise. God said Messiah is going to come. He's not come yet. They can't eliminate all the Jews or God's word fails. How many of you realize God's word never fails? So Mordecai is a man of great faith. He goes on, But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Isn't that one of the most famous lines from the scriptures? Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, maybe God arranged for you to be in the palace the queen of the land at this very time to be God's way of deliverance. Ow! Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. What day did we just mention in verse 12? The 13th of Nisan. So this is the 14th, the 15th, and the 16th. Hmm. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. 
So while they're praying, chapter 5 opens up. Now it happened on the third day, so this is the 16th of Nisan, that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. Ahasuerus delivers Esther. He reaches out his clemency and grants her life. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request up to half the kingdom? It shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And pretend tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. Why? Because only he and the king have been invited to this special banquet. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he went and called for his friends and his wife, Zeresh. With friends like these, who needs enemies? No, that's not in the text, but however. <laughs> then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I'm again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Sirish and all his friends said to him, let a gallow be made, fifty cubits high. And in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. How high is fifty cubits? Seventy-five feet. That's a pole seventy-five feet long where they would stick it through Mordecai set the pole upright, and he'd be hanging up there 75 feet in the air for the birds to peck upon. Mm -hmm. 
Anything please, Tommen. <coughs> so he had the gallows made. Chapter 6. That night, that very night. What night? The night of the 16th. Going on to the 17th. <coughs> the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. And they were read before the king. Yeah, yeah, a, a chronicle being read to you would definitely put you to sleep, right? But, and it was found written, it just happens to fall open here, that Mordecai had told Abigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. What an interesting place for it to fall open to, eh? Then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. <gasps> Horror of horrors! This says that the king's life is worth nothing. What an embarrassment. Oh no, it's horrible. So the king said, Who's in the outer court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for him. Then the king's servant said to him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, what shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, whom would the king delight to honor more than moi? And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, that a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. To let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of the king's most noble of princes. That he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square. And proclaim before him. Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman. Hurry, take the robe and the horse as you have suggested and do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. Can you just see Haman's face? Uh, afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's... Wait a minute, verse 11. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king likes honor. <laughs> you know it was done just like that. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning him with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that happened to him. His wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before him you have begun to fall as of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Can anybody say Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3? He who curses Israel, yeah. 
Verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet, which Esther had prepared. Oh, things are looking up. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther. And on the second day, what day is that? The 17th of Nisan. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me and my petition and my people and my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. I would have held my tongue had we been sold as male and female slaves. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. You know what? Haman still doesn't know she's a Jew. <laughs> so King Ahasuerus answered and said to Queen Esther, Where is he? And where is he? Who is he? Where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. You know what the adversary is in Hebrew? Satan. Ha-Satan. Ha-Satan. Yeah. So Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. But Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Oh, and then it really gets good. When the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across his couch where Esther was. He just tripped and falls right in front of the queen. Right in front of the king. Ah. Then the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? So the, as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Some people say, do you mean the words? No, no, the eunuchs. When they put the little hood over you, you're about to be let out to be slaughtered. Yeah. Now Herbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai who spoke good in the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. Put in your notes, there are four memorable things in history that happened on the 17th day of Nisan. That's the day Noah's Ark sat down on Mount Ararat. And Noah and his family were delivered from the judgment of the flood. That is the day that Israel and the mixed multitude came through the Red Sea, being delivered from Pharaoh's Egypt. It's the day that Haman is hung on his own tree. 
And it's the day that Messiah, Yeshua, arose from the grave. All four great acts of deliverance took place on the same day. But that's not the end of the story. Chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. The enemy of the Jews and Mordecai came before the king. For Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha of the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews, and are in all the king's provinces. What's the problem? You can't. The words can't be taken away. Verse 6. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? The king of Hashuera said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman. And they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. This is called passing the buck. The king says, I don't know what to do. You figure something out. Because we can't repeal the earlier decree. Verse 9. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Savan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote to the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them. It's only defense, not offense. Both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. In one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews should be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. 
So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white, with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province in that city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the Jews of the land became, many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Do not miss that. If you think that all the Jews today are direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're wrong. This is people from all nations being grafted in, just as happened at the Exodus. It's happened more than once in history. The Gentiles from the nations were grafted into Israel and became Jews. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials in the, of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in a king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. You would think it'd be millions, but it's not. Most of the people said, we're not going to attack the Jews. But those that continued to hate the Jews, they were willing. Verses 7, 8, 9, and 10 are very important. And in Shushan the citadel, it said, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, also Parashandatha, underlying the TH in Parshandatha. Dalphon, Aspatha, Paratha, Adaya, Aradatha, Parmashta, underlying that SH. Arasai, Aradai, and Vyazatha, underlying the Z in Vyazatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay hand on the plunder. Those three letters, the Tav, the Sheen, and the Zayin, are written in a different size letter than the rest of the text around them in the Hebrew scrolls. They bring us to a date. The date is Tishri 21 in the year 5707 in the Hebrew calendar, which is in 1946. It was in 1946 that the ten Nazis were hung after the Nuremberg trials. So God put in the book of Esther thousands of years ago the date on which these Nazis would be hung. There were actually 11 who were supposed to be hung, but one committed suicide before they could be hung, so there were 10 who were hung. 
Uh, verse 11. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the Siddle was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the Citadel and the ten sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree. And let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. That's where it gets really interesting. Those ten sons are already dead. But the next day they're going to hang those ten bodies on the stakes. Which is what prophesies the events of 1946. The second hanging of Haman's sons. Thank you. Verse 14, so the king commanded that it be done. The decree was issued in Shushan and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Did they attack the men from Shushan? No, the men of Shushan attacked them and they defended themselves. Never were they permitted to do an offensive attack, just defense. Verse 16, the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, but rest had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Do you keep saying on that day? Which means that in the day of the Lord, the Jews again are going to be attacked and are going to defend themselves, and it's going to be a great victory. We call that the Psalm 83 war. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday, and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews near and far, who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar. I wonder what we call those days. Purim? Yeah, that's why we're here. As the days in which the Jews had rest from their enemies as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from mourning to a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun, as Mordecai had written to them, because Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to annihilate them, and had cast purr, that is the lot, to consume them and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he commanded by letter that this wicked plot, which Haman had devised against the Jews, should return on his own head. What do you call that these days? The Haman principle? The harm you decide to do to another falls back on you? And that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. So they call these days Purim, after the name Pur. 
Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, what they had seen concerning this matter, and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them. That is, Jew and Gentile alike. Everyone who would celebrate that the Jewish people were delivered from the plot of that wicked, evil Haman. And the power behind him was Hasatan. Mm -hmm. Because Hasatan, Satan, said, if I can just destroy all the Jews, there won't be this pesky Messiah to come. Uh-huh. With that, without fail, they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. That these days of Purim should not fail to be observed amongst the Jews, and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter about Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at their appointed times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them and as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamenting. So the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. And King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the land and on the islands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and his might and the account of his greatness of Mordecai to which the king advanced him are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and was great amongst the Jews and well received by the multitude of his brethren seeking the good of his people and speaking peace to all his countrymen. When we finish the book, we say, Chazak, Chazak, Venish, Chazak. Be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. But there's an addendum to the book of Esther. Esther and Ahasuerus had a son. He's called in history Artaxerxes Longiminus. And he is the king who lets the children of Israel return back to the land. Being the son of a Jewish mother, that makes him Jewish. And his heart was turned toward God and he let the people go home. And with that, let's close in prayer.